Hey, it's Scott Orner, Cruise Consulting, and welcome to another episode of Founders and Friends. And before we start the podcast, let's give a quick shout out to Rippling. Rippling is the new cool payroll tool that we see a lot of startups using. Rippling is great for your traditional HR and payroll. They integrate very nicely. But guess what? They did another thing. They integrate into your IT infrastructure. They make it really easy for when you hire someone to spin up all the web services and their computer, which sounds kind of like not a huge deal. But actually, we did the study at Cruise. We spend $420 on average just getting a new employee's computer up and running and their web service up and running. It's actually a really big deal. It saves a lot of money. And, and the dogs are eating the dog food. Like We see a lot of startups coming in to Cruise now using Rippling. So please check out Rippling. Great service. We love it. I think we have a podcast with Parker Conrad. You can hear it from his own words, but we're seeing them take market share. So shout out to Rippling. And now to another awesome podcast at Cruise Consulting's Founders and Friends. Thanks. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise. Founders and Friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and Friends with your host, Scotty Ohl. Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And today, my very special guest is Prashant Fonseca of Tuesday Capital. Welcome, Prashant. Thank you. We're, we're taping on a, on a Friday afternoon, and we're, we're ready to talk venture capital here. Always exciting. I'm always excited to talk about venture capital. <laughs> so, Prashant, do you want to uh, maybe just retrace your career a little bit? How did you end up at Tuesday Capital? Uh, so, I was recruited about a year after college to join as an intern. I was a high school and collegiate entrepreneur. When I was a kid, my interests were business and computers. I was very interested in open source software. I was obsessed with things like wireless routers and working on wireless router firmware. I think I started my first business in first grade, which was selling bookmarks. And I got nice. I got shut down. Apparently, selling bookmarks was not something you were supposed to do as a first grader. Um, but I sort of kept at it. It was a while before uh, the computers and the business interest actually came together. Like I was interested in business in ways that often had nothing to do with technology. And I, st I started selling things on eBay as a kid. And then I, I ran a business called the Helpful Student Network when I was in high school, which actually scaled to be quite, quite large in the Washington, D.C. area, where we had high school students going and helping uh, older people, mostly seniors, with technology. Uh, it was with computers, sometimes even with TVs, entertainment, a little, little bit of everything. When I got to college, I was like that entrepreneur kid who had you know, I ended up rooming with someone who ran a company called Boom Boom Batteries, which he got to several hundred thousand dollars of revenue. It was a bit of a funny name for a battery company, That's but it was awesome. remote controlled car batteries. So uh, it was because of uh, the relationships that I developed when I was in college, where I, I became an advisor to a bunch of groups of people who were starting companies that I, I became known by folks who went on to uh, fund venture back companies. And I even met some VCs. So because of my the long-standing interactions with with the community and and people thinking I was a fun person to just frankly bounce ideas off of, uh, I got pulled in to be an investor. I, I thought I would go be an entrepreneur and that I would be an investor for maybe a year or two, and uh, you know here I am seven years later. Did you? So you went straight from college into venture capital? I, not straight. Okay, so I did Teach for America after I graduated <laughs> from oh, that's from cool. college. That's I cool. I was I was on this track to you know I I grew up in a community where my interest in computers was very frowned upon. They were like, how, if you spend so much time on the computer, really? how are you going to get into medical school or law school? You know, I grew up in DC. Uh, East Coast culture is very, uh, it might be different now, but back then, 
you know, I, I went to good schools. I, I was, I was, you know, good at math. I was good at science. I was good with computers. But they were always like, no, you need to learn how to write. You need to go to law school. Okay, there's this school. It's called Harvard. You need to figure out how to go there. <laughs> okay, and computers aren't going to get you there. Is I don't think that was right. Yeah. But that was. Turns out it might have helped. helped. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what what cities? Did uh, you so teach I was in? teaching in Dallas, Texas. I taught high school math at Brian Adams High School in East Dallas. I taught algebra one and geometry for two ninth and tenth graders. And did you like it? Uh, it was a very challenging experience. Uh, I'm very glad I did it. It was very rewarding. I would never, you know, I, I I would do everything the same again. It was an incredibly tough experience, though. So when you ask. Most people, if they liked it, uh, you're usually not going to get like it. It, it. You know, it wasn't like, oh, it's so much fun. It was like, oh, man, I'm trying to not cry every day. Uh, it was. Yeah. I have, a, I have a friend who did Teach of America and, and, and she did the she did end up crying most days because it was she, she it was great. She went into like an inner city school and did, you know, a lot of tough work and changed some kids lives, but also really difficult for her. So I think good for you for doing that. That's God's work. And uh, and then you got into the you got smart and went to the venture capital industry. Yeah. So that summer that I interned at was between my Teach for America years. I actually spent the first month of that summer working on a uh, a lesson planning startup that I wanted to build. Uh, my programming skills were pretty rusty at the time. And I after talking to a bunch of people, I realized EdTech was maybe not the best market to get into uh, as a you know twenty one or twenty year old over the summer. So. I gave up on that pretty quick. I called my friend back who had been trying to get me to go to join and do this internship. And I was like, hey, about that internship, how about how about we do that? That's still an option. Uh, great, thank you uh, for A.B. Katz, and uh, who the was most recently at Office yeah. Capital, is it's, the person who brought me in. So thank you to him. Oh, awesome. And, and so you did that. You started in 2013? So I started in 2013. And then after that summer, I had another year of Teach for America, and I was working part-time. And then I joined full time at the beginning and moved to San Francisco at the beginning of 2015. So you've been at Tuesday Capital for what seven years now? Seven years, including the internship and part time, uh, five years full time. Awesome, and it, I mean that's that's been a lifetime in venture capital. It's been an incredible market, and now with COVID, we're hitting kind of a tough market. I, I want to talk about kind of the stuff you're doing on behalf of your companies a little bit later, but maybe give so people know because Tuesday Capital rebranded. It used to be the Crunch Fund. Maybe give the history of the fund a little bit so people have a little more context. Sure. So the fund was started by Pat Gallagher and Mike Arrington. Um, Pat had uh, immediately before that been at uh, Vantage Point Partners. Uh, he had operated at a few companies during the dot-com era, and he was at uh, Morgan Stanley Venture Partners before that. Uh, Mike was the founder of TechCrunch and Crunchbase, uh, which is where we got the name, uh, the original name of the fund. They... Started investing at the end of 2011. Uh, that first fund was a 2012 vintage. There were about 150 portfolio companies in that fund, uh, including Uber and Airbnb, Pinterest. I think DigitalOcean comes from that fund. I think I think what is now Zipline is also from that fund. Was originally Romotive. You know, they got off to a very very strong start. Pat and Mike raised Fund Two together. Uh, Mike went part time for Fund Three as he was thinking about what he wanted to do next, and uh, went off to uh, to go into to crypto. And um, we have kind of continued with the same strategy ever since. Changes have been that we've we've gone from 150 companies to in fund two we went to 80 companies. In fund three, we had I think the number was 54 companies total. So we've gotten a little bit more more focused. We're writing slightly larger checks. In fund one, we were writing 100, 150 thousand dollar checks, very high volume. But again, backing a lot of great founders. And today, we're writing closer to 250. Uh, the range is 250 to 500 thousand for an initial check. That 
the average is somewhere between there. And you guys, what what stage do you like to invest in? So I say pre-seed, seed, post-seed, really anything that's before Series A is fair game for us. I think when I think of what a Series A is in my head, that means a $10, $12 million round for the marquee funds. I think that's that's kind of where the floor is for a Series A today. I'm happy. I'd rather go earlier than later these days. You know, if we're really excited about a company, we might invest in that five, maybe $7 million, slightly larger round. Um, but given our check size and the, the stage of company at which we're able to help the most, uh, I'd rather be as, as early as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, the valuations are lower. You actually have more contact with the with the founder. You're actually helping shape everything. So it is kind of more fun too. And, you know, if you catch Airbnb or an Uber at that stage, it's incredible. You know, the portfolio is made. It's yeah, it's incredible. And we were talking before we turned on the mics about the kind of the categories you like to invest in, but it sounds like you guys are very open-minded. You'll look at kind of anything that's that's interesting to you and that has the venture type of profile, right? Absolutely. I think if it's a company that's in a space that is traditionally not something that gets uh, VCs excited, I think any founder in these spaces will know this, right? Like if you're in ad tech or marketing tech, or if you're doing hardware, right? There's certain spaces where that VCs are kind of allergic to and, and, you know, we'll look at those companies. You know, it's just, you know, what are they doing that's totally different, right? Because yeah, as much as as much as it is true that, you know, investors, for the most part, their group think is usually because like, if they don't like to invest in a space, it's because that space is very hard, very difficult, maybe overly crowded. Maybe it's easy to get to 10 million in revenue, hard to get past that. You know, that's what people think about ad tech, marketing tech. It's largely true. But, you know, what I'm looking for from a, for a founder in those spaces is just, you know, why, why are you not that company? And I love, I love the contrarian thinkers who come to me and are like, I know you don't ever want to back an ad tech company, but here's why you're going to back this ad tech company. I like those. Those get me excited. I do too, because they usually, those are founders who usually found something and they have something that the rest of the world doesn't know. Yeah. And you can build a company on that. That's really cool. So you guys, are you guys kind of pricing the pre-seed round or the seed round or how, what's your role in the syndicate? How do you, how do you manage that? So we can be the first check, but we're not going to write the term sheet because we, you know, with a two hundred fifty to five hundred thousand dollar check, and the typical round size for seed being anywhere from two to five, maybe even larger million these days, and pre-seed usually being one to two million, our quarter million to five hundred thousand dollar check, I wouldn't feel comfortable writing a term sheet and only putting in that amount. And because of our fund size, that's really all, all we yeah. can put in for the first check. But we're happy to. I'm happy to come, go to a company and say, "Look, we're in. I'm happy to invest money on a note. You know, we don't price round, safe note, convertible note." You know, we don't have any strong preference there. As long as the terms make sense for us and we're excited about the company, we'll, we'll find a way to make it work. We have very close relationships with a lot of other firms. So uh, and I'm actually doing this right now. There's a company that came out of YC that I, I like a lot. They, you know, very noisy. It was a sort of disruptive year for, for YC companies. They've pulled in about 100K of commitments from angels so far. Still talking to a bunch of funds. But I was like, you know what? I, I want to put $250,000 into this company. I emailed 10 funds today and I was like, look, I will do this company if you are interested in, in, in lead. I'm just looking for a friend or someone I would like to work with to, to help. Yeah. So that's how it works if uh, if there isn't a round. Obviously, if there's a round that's already more, mostly come together and they're looking for some other people to add to the syndicate, it's a very straightforward thing. That's really cool. And uh, just for the audience, like that's you're actually providing like a lot, a lot of leadership and a lot of value for the company there because... There's a lot of people who will sit around and just hop into a round when it's already priced and when it's it's moving and already done. But that's great that you're working on behalf of these companies and helping 
catalyzed around. I, I had a founder actually tell me what they call most of those funds. And again, I, I say this is because we do write small checks and we're not writing term sheets. I think people it's easy for people to classify yeah. us this way too, which is why I make a big point of like, no, I will commit to your round. I, I, I can do that. But uh, yeah, the founder told me they call, in YC, they call these barnacle funds. <laughs> I was like, then he was like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I was like, it's okay. That's actually, that's really uh, funny. I wouldn't okay. call anyone that. Yeah. I, I love all other VC firms. But it's it's interesting that that, that is uh, how one can be perceived. So I want to make a very I big point it, of, I, I will commit. I don't care who the lead is. You know, I might care that, that you have enough money to operate, right? Like if you need $3 million, I want to, I'm going to work with you to make sure you actually get that money. If you need $3 million and I give you a quarter million and we have a problem. Yeah, it doesn't get you anywhere. You said something really interesting before we turn the mics on, which is, your decision-making criteria or your company-picking criteria has really changed since you joined. Maybe can you, you walk us through that? Because I, I think that's a super interesting question. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Has it you, changed? By the way, thank you for doing my job for me. You you did my job. It was great. <laughs> uh, happy to. Uh, try to make everyone's life easier here. Try to make Scott's yeah. life easier. Try to make, uh, make uh, our portfolio companies' lives easier. Trying to make other firms, sending them great deals. All they have to do is write the term sheet. <laughs> you know, that's really you nice. Know? Yeah, that's amazing. Um, okay, so when I was new, and I think most junior VCs start off this way, I was very analytical. Of course, I was okay. You know, I had literally a list of pieces of information I needed to collect during a meeting. Like, okay, founder background, list of competitors, market size, TAM unit economics, cost. Uh, I mean, it, it went on and on and on, right? Uh, and and so some of them are weird, like fire. What was the fire in the meeting? <laughs> you know, you know, because because when you have no like a heat check, yeah, you know, I would I would diligently write all of these things down and trying to tease this information out of a conversation, and then I'd go back and I'd look all this information. I'm like, I don't know what to do with this because when you don't have that much experience. Specifically as an investor, even if you have a lot of experience doing other things, but especially when you're 23 and have no experience really doing much of anything, that's all you have to go off of. You don't know what else is out there. So you try to figure out if this is good or bad based on these 18 inputs, but but you can't. Now, fast forward seven years, and I've just seen a lot of companies. I've met a lot of founders. Right? It's Now it's, it's I understand what all the other investors were saying back then, that it's about the people. It really is about the people, Right. There are some founders that just stand out in terms of their understanding of the market, their understanding of how the game works, their understanding of of, uh, of recruiting. Right? I, recruiting should be harder than fundraising. It most, it almost all the time. Fundraising can be difficult, uh, and it's something that takes practice. It takes experience. Often, maybe not if you just made an app and it went viral, or you made a software self serve tool and it went to a hundred thousand revenue in two weeks. There are cases where maybe people are just going to throw money at you, but for the most part. You know, they're people who, for whatever reason, just really stand out. Uh, so I can't, I can't explain that as well as I could have explained what I was doing in 2013. I can't go through the list and say, well, these are the 18 factors. Um, but that's the truth of it. That's how people really decide. And you've seen all, all, a lot of the companies you've looked at over the years play out. So you have like this, you've got the end-to-end knowledge base now. You know exactly what happened. You've run all these experiments. You know exactly what works. You know, in, in addition to people who have like great insight on the market, or who are great recruiters, you know, one thing I always look for is people, CEOs who are organized or founders who are organized, actually organization and prioritization can help you so much as a founder. It's, it's incredible 
because we see the whole spectrum at cruise and it's like sometimes people part of our services is getting them organized but like even that we can't we can't do that for you like as long as you're working on the right things as a founder and continue to make progress odds are you'll end up in a pretty good place but it's the it's the folks who bounce around a little bit too much or fall, don't follow up or whatever it is those companies tend to have a difficult time absolutely i totally agree uh, it's something that I didn't. I don't think I paid enough attention to. But yeah, it's interesting. You pick up on little, little heuristics uh, o- over time, right? Things that you start to to pattern match, uh, and that's absolutely one of them. Organization is huge. Just people who are on top of things. I think being able to prioritize, uh, being able to know what's important, right? I, I think a lot of investors will say, and it's true, that in a pitch meeting, what I'm paying attention to is not as much what people are saying, but how they're saying it what it signals about the way that they're approaching the problem. If When someone has a pitch deck with all the answers, I'm very skeptical. Because if it's a news company, you shouldn't have all the answers. You should have a lot of interesting hypotheses. Maybe you've thought some things through. But at the end of the day, you know, you, need, you have to been, have been strategic and smart about picking a space where there are opportunities. You have to put, have put together a good team. And then you need to be able to put together good hypotheses and execute quickly on them. You know, and figure out what works and what doesn't. Yeah. The last part, the figure out what works and what doesn't is the critical part too, because it's not, like you said, if you have all the answers, you're probably not right. It's just not gonna, there aren't going to be the right answers. That's really great. Talking about like, you know, all this criteria you use now, like your new criteria, is there like a founder or a company that jumps out at you that you like in in your memory, you're like, oh my gosh, this person or this company was like, was the, the quintessential kind of my new decision criteria. You know what? There's a company called Unfido in our portfolio. Uh, Unfido or Unfido. This may be my biggest critique of the company. When I asked them how to pronounce the name, they said, either way is fine. <laughs> what do you mean either way is fine? Uh, I think it's okay for me to tease them about that. Uh, but you know, Hussein, the founder of that company, is just, I just have infinite, truly infinite trust in his ability to, like, everything he says he's going to do, he does. He's the, like, on that point of organization, he is the most organized. Um, he has this system where he takes, when he has a to-do, he takes a post-it note and he puts it on his laptop screen, literally on the screen, blocking the wow. screen. So like he has to do it. Otherwise he can't see his screen. Like if he gets it, and if it gets That's too really backlogged smart. on things he has to do, he literally won't be able to do anything, right? So it's like- <laughs> <laughs> I need to start doing that. That, that sounds like a great organization. I don't, know if I've, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen anyone else do it, but I was like, this is how you become the most organized entrepreneur in the world. He's the one founder, literally the only one. Uh, and normally I would say it's a bad signal. If I like, if someone says they're 100% certain someone will be successful, like, that's crazy. No one's 100% certain. But he's the one founder. I'm just like, I just, I know you, I don't have to worry about this company ever at all. That's fantastic. How did you guys meet? How'd you, how did that intro happen? We met through uh, this group called the Cairo Society that I was affiliated with. It's a collegiate entrepreneurial group. It was started... I, I think I was a freshman in college, so it was 2008, and the founders were, I think, one year older than me. The individual who was sort of the head of the organization was at Penn, and there were some uh, USC and Harvard people as well who kind of got together and created this, you know, across the country and eventually became a global organization pretty quickly. You know, I think in the second year, we had people from China coming in and pitching startups there. So that was a cool organization to be a part of, and um, someone from the UK had... Uh, and, and, and Fido is a company that is based in, in the UK as well. Now, now they're by country, I guess. Fantastic. Well, what's there's the other kind of thing that was on both of our minds was just the fallout from 
you know, COVID and what's going to happen in the startup ecosystem and, and how people should deal with it. Maybe, maybe we should break this up into two things, which is kind of, let's start with the companies that are kind of maybe series A or series B or series C that are the kind of companies that you've already invested in a couple of years ago and that are doing their thing or, you know, other companies you see about, about, and then we can get into advice for, um, you know, the people who are just about to start a company or at pre-seed, those kind of super early stages. But I'm curious to think, like, you know, what are, what kind of advice are you giving to the A's, the B's, and the C's right now? So I would actually break it up slightly differently. I, it, it, pretty close, but I think the way that I was thinking about it was when do uh, when, when does the company need to raise next, right? So it could be a relatively earlier stage or relatively later stage companies. Raise next implies they've already raised at least one round. So for companies at ABC or even even Seed that we're planning on raising in Q3 or Q4 of this year, my feedback to them, and I think this is this drives what other people have been telling them, is like, you just need to do whatever you can to get more runway and buy some more time. Because the only thing that's certain right now is uncertainty. There's just a lot of chaos in, in the market. There have been the immediate effects of people switching to work from home, uh, people having to cha- you know look after their kids, just as you know that shift in lifestyle, shift in working habits. But we, we haven't even had the major hit of very high absolute numbers of infections in the United States yet. That's that's still going to come. Venture capital firms will definitely stay in business, uh, but it's not business as usual. I think people were saying that last week, and it's you know you have two separate issues as well. You've got the virus, and you've got the markets and the overall economy, which are linked, but they are actually two different things. So. I'm telling folks, if you're raising in Q3, Q4, buy yourself some more time. Assume rounds are going to be slower and they're just going to be fewer of them done. The buyer might be higher. And it's also just, it's also going to be a very difficult year to add revenue for most businesses. So we have to keep all of that in mind. For companies that we're planning on raising almost immediately, I've actually told them to raise. We've already kind of started raising, right? For companies that we're planning on raising in three, four weeks, I've you know we're raising now. You know We started having meetings this yep. week because... We just need to yeah. get ahead of it however we can. To the companies that are getting started now, to the pre-seed and seed companies, here's what I think will be different potentially. I think because of uncertainty, firms will cut back a little bit. I think the number of deals will drop. I think valuations might end up being lower than they would have a month ago. That's just the reality of what happens in a downturn. But the money is there. There are so many employees, so many incredibly talented people who have had to be let go already, and that, that's probably going to continue happening. There's a lot of talent out there. In your first 12, 18, 24 months as a business, when you are still in the product market fit discovery phase, you often don't need to really actually sell very much to anybody. You're focused on building your first product and getting it out there. right? And this, you know, to, to look at the silver lining, this is the perfect opportunity to do that. The next 12 to 18 months, I mean, I mean let's, let's assume that an 18-month economic shutdown. I hope that's not the case. It's entirely possible. Let's assume that, right? If you if you if everything just went on pause for the next eighteen months and everyone's working from home, what would you do? It could actually be a great time to start a company now. You know, I hope that some of those folks who got laid off, who just not because of anything they did, but because it's just bad timing. I hope some of them start companies and pitch me and have some great ideas, things they can work on for the twelve to, the next twelve to eighteen months. And when the market does come back and the economy does recover, they'll they'll be ready. They'll have actually built something. It takes time to build things. We invest in companies that we don't expect any revenue from all the time. Now is the perfect time to be working on one of those projects. That's I agree with you hundred percent. And it's actually like really inspirational to hear you say that because 
because yeah, there's there are going to be some amazing companies started out of this uh, out of the trauma here, and it is real trauma. Like there's com- a lot of companies are going down right now, or they're furloughing everyone, or they're going to be kind of three months of cash. And so yes, if you are someone who has a vision that you've always wanted to pursue, and you have the tools and the talent to build it. Like it is a really good, and that this is the great thing about the pre-seed and the seed market is investors there are used to a lot of uncertainty. They're used to giving you the money to build a product. They're not, they're not used to, you know, looking at your revenue traction and deciding that like the series A or series B level. So you're going to get some real shots on goal if you, if you have a compelling vision. So I think that's really, really great advice. And then I think on the, um, you said something like on the companies that are, you know, raising this year or maybe you know six months mm-hmm. from now the the separation of the the virus and the economic damage i think you're i think that was a really great observation because right now the virus is like front and center for everybody but there's real uh, economic damage being done and i i do think there'll be a hangover for that because you're right like how much disposable income will consumers have how much disposable investment will small businesses or other types of businesses be able to actually put into new software systems or technologies it may it may get really limited because they're doing so much triage everywhere else so i, I think that was a really great observation of like buy yourself some more time push it into 2021 and if you need to raise now you should start raising now like like get going on totally and and funds my observation right now is that people a little slower on email i've had almost no funds some have said we're just not investing now that's not the case for most there's like at least one that has said crisis is a great time to find the best opportunities we are now investing more than we ever have Uh, most are slowing down a little bit but but deals are happening people are getting used to working from home um, people are getting used to are getting more comfortable with the idea of investing in companies or in founders that they have not been able to meet in person. They've only met over Zoom. Yeah. So, have you done that before? Have you ever invested in companies that you haven't met the founders in person? I I have. I've invested in companies that I've only had a phone call with. I think that's because the nature of those were usually cases where we were just kind of the last check into a round, and it was a very heavily vetted company, and I you know had a lot of excitement about the space and. Knew the other folks around the table as well. Normally, it's important to meet the company. Of course, I like met all these founders afterwards, um, but but sometimes you have to make really quick decisions as a yeah. seed investor. So I, I have that was not you know, this was not new for me, but it might be new for some of the folks who yeah. are writing larger checks, writing oh, big term sheets, yeah. uh, going through a different type of diligence process, or doing later stage rounds. You know, imagine. I mean, there's some yeah. Series Bs and Cs. You know, fifty, hundred million dollar rounds that might be getting done over zoom it's a, it's a totally incredible thing but you know we're a remote company so like for me you're like this is normal the last year, <laughs> this, yeah that's a, that's the thing it's totally normal for me but it just takes it just takes some practice and some familiarity and people people will get used to it yeah well it's, it's interesting right we're investors in gitlab which has always been a fully remote company mm, yeah and a lot yeah. of people have been looking to them now because they're like how do you do this Oh, I've given that link out to their playbook like 20 times in the last two weeks that is like yeah the greatest lead generation tool ever invented. So it, for those who don't know, GitLab has has basically written out every procedure and every tip and the way the company actually runs remotely. So like any new company that's thinking about going remote can actually just read that play. It's very long too. It's a big, thorough playbook. And it's inc- it's an incredible resource they gave to the world. Yeah, and timely. You know, I, I, think, I think a lot of people are going to spend less money on office space even when all of this is 
you know, done in clear because they realized like, oh, video conferencing costs a lot less than an office in San Francisco or New York. And for certain types of, for certain business functions, it's totally fine. I totally agree. And, you know, we used to have a 30 person office in San Francisco, like downtown San Francisco. And actually that was like one of the biggest money sucks and probably mistakes we've ever made. And then we went to WeWork and have been hiring remotely for a couple of years. And it's so much easier. And it's so, people are so much happier because especially you're able to attract kind of the Mm -hmm. people with young families because those people really value their time. They really value being around their kids and they're not around their kids when they're working, except for now in this crisis. But it just cuts like an hour or two hours out of their commute every day. And they really enjoy the flexibility. So I I, I'm, I'm, I feel like we've experienced the movie and now the rest of the world is seeing the movie and, and we'll find out that's actually a really great to live and a great way to live and work. So I'm with you. I think I think we work will still do well if they don't go bankrupt in this, you know, the trauma from um, from this whole downturn. But like that type of co-working is is here to stay. People will really like it. I think so. I think there's an interesting evolution of it coming in the near term as well, right? I think the model might be less. Uh, the idea of WeWork was this idea of easy, scalable, flexible office space. That was the original vision. You know, the what we think of as an office might not be you go somewhere from nine to five and then you go home, right? It might be a okay. What what do we do when we do need to have an in-person meeting, right? What do we do when we do want to go kind of work quietly somewhere that's not home because our kids are running around and screaming and we love them and that's fine, but sometimes we need to get away from that to get things done, right? Uh, I, I think the way that we think, then the way that uh, of what commercial real estate is, is going to evolve what office space is, which is cool. I like that a lot. It may become more of a membership thing and you just drop in, drop out and don't have, you know, I, I would be all for that too. That sounds really, really attractive to me. Well, hey, you've done an amazing job. Thank you so much for coming by. Thank it's you. Great meeting you. Can you tell everyone where they can, how they can reach out to you and how they can find you? Yeah. So the best way to get me is via email, pf at tuesday.vc. Awesome. You can also follow me on on Twitter or feel free to ping me on LinkedIn as well, Prashant Fonseca. And before we leave, huge congratulations on your promotion to partner. That's unbelievable. And I know you worked really hard to get there. And that's that's a big deal. It's hard to do. Thank you very much. I, I am humbled by it. Uh, same job that I've I've had for a long time. Uh, now just bigger expectations. So I, I will do my best to live up to it. <laughs> awesome. All right, man. Great meeting you. Thank you so much. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to cruise from founders and friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and friends with your host, Scotty Oh.